All right, well, good morning, everybody. It's a beautiful, cold Sunday morning. It's a very cold Sunday morning. Am I the only person who's annoyed by the fact that it rains like once a week in this town, but then when it's cold, it never snows? That has been my complaint. If I had one complaint since I got here, rains like it feels like it rains every Wednesday, and I'm coming up here to, to teach Bible class, and I think, oh, it's raining, so people aren't going to come. So I was like, the devil makes it rain every Wednesday. I could ask the Lord to make it snow in the wintertime to make up for it, but so far, no snow. But maybe we'll get some. Now that I've complained, maybe we'll get some snow. That's how it works, right? Now, we don't need prayer. We just need to complain loud enough. No, I don't, I don't think that's in the Bible. But we're thankful that you're here. It's, it's a great assembly that we have today, those who are with us in person and those who are watching online. It is still the beginning of 2021. It's still the month of January, so we're still kind of introducing the theme that we have that we're going to be considering for the duration of this year. You can see the banners on either side of me and on the screen behind me as well. Love your neighbor is what we're going to be looking at. And we made the observation, Alex and I did last week, as we really introduced the whole of it, how it's, it's just three little words. It's easy to remember. It's one of those commandments and one of those fundamental tenets of Christianity that everybody knows, even the non-Christian understands, at least that we try to live by the idea of love your neighbor. Um, but short though it is and fundamental though it is, there is a lot to that commandment. There is a lot more built into that commandment, a lot more expectations to that commandment than just what is readily apparent by reading the three words that state that commandment. Love your neighbor. Even if we just took each of those three words, even the word your, you, I could get you a whole sermon out of that. I'm not going to right now. But you could get a whole sermon just out of looking and breaking down just those three words. Never mind everything that came before that statement and everything that comes after that statement whenever it is mentioned in the Bible. One thing that we're going to do starting this Sunday to the, uh, through the remainder of this month, Alex and I, is give you a series of sermons, four of them starting this morning, on some of the conditions that are attached to this commandment in the Bible. Now understand when I say conditions, I mean more like you sign up for something and there are terms and conditions that apply. I don't mean conditions like here are some circumstances where you don't have to love, some conditions where you would not have to love. No, you're always going to have to love your neighbor. It's just you need to understand when you sign up for Christianity and part of the rules of Christianity involve loving your neighbor, just what that entails, what you're getting yourself into, what the expectations are. In fact, expectation might be a better word than condition. What the expectations are for someone who goes into it saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to love my neighbor. That's our theme for the year. That's our goal for this year. That by the end of this year, I'm going to say, in all of 2021, I increased my ability and my willingness and my action of loving my neighbor. All right, I'm glad to hear that. But here's what goes into that. And that's what we're going to talk about this month. By looking at four different times when that phrase is either specifically said or basically alluded to the phrase, love your neighbor, and looking at it from different avenues. What we're going to do this morning, and I want you to open your Bibles now to it, is to Matthew chapter 5. Open your Bibles and let's examine this morning the Sermon on the Mount, the famous discourse of the Lord that covers three chapters in the book of Matthew. It's also a little bit in Mark and a little bit in Luke as well, where he gives what is very famous and is one of the more, at least in terms of the content, it has maybe pound for pound the most famous statements that people know from the Lord by those who are not necessarily followers of Jesus. There are a lot of things that are said here that are 
so famous and so fundamental and so recognizable to what it means to be a Christian. And that's what gives it such distinction. But I want us to focus this morning on just chapter 5 and use this kind of as the, uh, the frame around which we'll build our sermon. Now, I'm not going to tell you specifically what we're going to talk about in the sermon. I'm going to give you about 10 minutes of introduction. Um, starting now, everything before was just, you know, freebie. So starting now is the real introduction. I'm going to give you 10 minutes of that. I'm going to build up to the actual sermon, which is not going to take long. Don't worry. And then I'm going to build up to the actual title and logo, for lack of a better word, of the series that we're uh, starting. Now, if you've got your bulletin, you've already seen the front cover, so you know, but just pretend you haven't seen that, okay? I want to, I want to build up to lay that foundation so you understand what's the big deal about this series that we're digging into. So let's start by reading Matthew chapter 5, obviously not the whole chapter, but I do want to just make note of, to start with, just the beginning of it. So read with me verses 3 through verse 12. This is the this, this section that is famously known as the Beatitudes. All right, very familiar to us, but just to refresh our memories, let's notice what Jesus says. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. From the Beatitudes, that the word Beatitude means blessed or the blessed ones. So from this, we are given kind of a, a, a rundown. It's not comprehensive. It's not every single one. But it's a good summation of the kind of people that belong to the kingdom of heaven. And that phrase repeats in various wordings throughout this. Blessed are these kinds of people, for they shall well be something that relates to whatever they're blessed about. And then it also fits in and sometimes even says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven or they shall inherit the earth. That, that's all tying into the same idea. These are the kind of people that are going to belong to me. This is what they look like. This is how you identify them in a crowd. Not by their physical characteristics, but by the way in which they handle the world around them and their relationship with God. Their relationship with God and their relationship with others. And so he gives this list of people, this list of uh, descriptions of people. And I want to walk you through them and looking at them in two different groups. We're going to pair them into two categories. First of all, let's notice that he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or to put this in a more literal way, blessed are those who are beggars for spiritual things. Blessed are the people who crave, who yearn, who say to themselves, I can have nothing else, but I must have this. And what is this? In Jesus' mind, Blessed people are those who say it is spirituality. It is holy things. It is not worldly things. Now, if you, if you hear the word beggar just in general, a beggar is somebody who desires and craves and says, if I have nothing else, I must have this, whatever this is. But in a worldly way, a beggar is someone who begs for food or for shelter or for clothing Things that we would deem essential. Things that we say a person, yes, must have them. And so if you don't have them, of course, you're going to beg for them. 
you can't have any other means to get them. I understand that. Jesus understands that. What Jesus wants us to think, though, is there's things bigger than this world, things even more important than this world, even more important than food and clothing and shelter. And those things are spiritual things. And it takes someone to want to have to beg for those things. Because if you're hungry long enough, your stomach will tell you, you need to start begging. If you're cold and without shelter long enough and without clothing long enough, your body will tell you, you need to start begging. But your body will never tell you, you need to beg for spiritual things. A person has to decide that. And a person who does decide that and says, you know what I'm really missing more than anything is holiness. A person who makes that choice, Jesus says, is blessed by God. Look at the next one. Blessed are the mourners. King James says, blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are people who are sad. Blessed are people who have been brokenhearted. Blessed are people, literally, who weep. Blessed are the criers. Now, anybody who does anybody wrong, or no, let's flip that, anybody who has been wronged by anybody, if you're the wronged person, someone has hurt you, someone has broken your heart, it is a natural human response to cry about it, to weep and to wail and to mourn, to sit in sackcloth and ashes and say, woe is me. That is a perfectly normal reaction. All Jesus does is, is He says there is a spiritual aspect to that that a person has to desire to have, to choose to have. Because the natural human inclination, human tendency, without spirituality, is to be wronged, to cry about it, and then to stew in not only tears, but in bitterness and in a desire for vengeance. And to say, okay, this hurts, and I'm going to suffer the sting, and I'm going to cry over the sting, but then I'm going to plot a way to sting you back, to hurt you back, to get back and to get even. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. I, spirituality, God will comfort you. Blessed are they who mourn. They will be comforted in the heavenly kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn for God to comfort them. In other words, I'm going to take my wound. I'm going to give it to God. I'm not going to take vengeance on myself, for myself. I'm not going to take action against that person. I'm going to yield it over to God. I'm going to mourn with piety. I'm going to mourn with a religious, the word means, with a, with a spiritual mindset, a holy attitude. Those kinds of mourners will be blessed. Next, blessed are the meek. You might have sometimes been called meek. People use the word meek as an insult, as an epithet. Jesus is a meek person. And I can say that lovingly. I say that um, honorably. But a lot of people look at Jesus and they see His meekness and they think it's, it does Him a disservice. A lot of people see the meekness of Jesus and they say, less of that. We don't need that. We need something that's not so meek because people in the world view meekness as weakness. Meekness in the world is people who just get pushed around all the time. Who just, you know, they're, they're just knocked around and they, they're bullied and they never retaliate, they never fight back, they never stand up for themselves. Yes, that's what meekness is. Blessed are those people. It doesn't mean you can't stand up for yourself. It doesn't mean you're not trained or prepared or adequate. It means your first inclination is not to retaliate. Certainly not to sucker punch if you've been sucker punched. No, your first inclination is spiritual, not worldly. The world will tell you, 
You have the strength to fight back. You must fight back. Jesus says you have the strength to fight back. Resist that temptation. He could have called 12 legions of angels. You want to talk about fighting back? He could have won the whole game right there for himself and for none of us. But he chose to be meek. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a tamed stallion. It is a broken horse. Full of power. And choosing not to do it because it has yielded itself to its master. Blessed are the meek. And the last one on this point. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the sincere in their inner man. Blessed are the genuine in their character. As opposed to the insincere, the not genuine or the hypocritical, or the impure in their heart. And in the context of the rest of the chapter, it's the kind of people who act a certain, or who uh, act, their actions, I guess act, is a, a certain way on the outside, but inside they're, they're impure. Their character, their actions, they may even do good for other people. They may help you out of the ditch. They may pick you up when you're knocked down. They may drive you to the hospital. They may do all these good things to you, but their heart, their character is not pure. It may be that they're just trying to score brownie points. Or it may be that they just think they're better than you and so they have an obligation to help the little people. That kind of an attitude exists. People who have an impure heart may do pure good things, but their character is wrong. Who could see that? I couldn't see that. If I was in need and you helped me, all I would know is that your action was good. Your heart may still be bad. Your motivation for it may be wrong. Who can see that but the Lord? These first four, and the first one especially, poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That ties in with it too. That first grouping of ones that Jesus mentioned, they all relate to my relationship with God. My character before God as I stand before Him. I am hungering and thirsting for what He can offer, not the world. I am mourning with a spiritual mindset, not one of retaliation. I am meek because my master was meek. I am pure in heart, which is what he sees, no one else. This is my character before God. But not only so, because Jesus keeps going. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Literally, blessed are the makers of peace. The word is what it is. Blessed are the people who, when they have opportunity to make war, make peace. Blessed are the people who when the opportunity arises to escalate, they de-escalate. When they could make a situation worse, they work to make a situation better. When they could bring conflict, instead they bring resolve. A resolution. Blessed are the people who, to paraphrase Isaiah, as he is talking about the people who belong to the kingdom of the Messiah, who take their swords, Isaiah 2, and hammer them down, rework the metal, take their swords and beat them into shears. Think shears like the, the, the harvesting tool that you use to cut the grain, cut the crop, to harvest your bounty. Blessed are the people, in other words, who take a sword. What is a sword used for in war? To stab and to slice, to cut, to kill. You take a sword and you kill. And so in so killing, you remove one life from this world. You subtract with a sword. A sword takes away. Instead, they take their sword and they turn it into an instrument of harvesting. What does it do? What happens in a harvest? You grow. You have bounty. You have produce. Produce. Increase. Your yield. You have words that involve addition, not subtraction. So they take their sword and they do the opposite with it. They take their weapon of murder and they make it an instrument of peace. Blessed are those people whose mindset is fixed to resolution. Blessed are the persecuted. Now, I don't know what your Bible says in that verse. It's verse number 
um, 11, 10 and 11. I don't know, your Bible might have a different word. Mine says persecute or persecuted. I've, I've looked at a lot of modern and more modern translations that come out every year. And it's becoming a trend where this word persecute, it appears a lot in the, in the New Testament, is being uh, translated differently. The word, the new word is being added there. Instead of persecute, the word is attacked. I don't like that translation because it's too limiting. An attack is a physical altercation. That's what I think of at least. Maybe I'm wrong. When I think of someone as attacking me, I think I'm being directly assaulted, not indirectly. The word persecute does not mean attack. It involves attacking sometimes as a byproduct. The word persecute means to pressure. It means to intimidate, to browbeat, to force, to conform. A better, if you want a modern word, if you don't like the word persecute, you want a modern word that we use in our vernacular, instead of attack, use this word, terrorize. Because a persecutor is a terrorist. What is a terrorist? But a person who uses fear, terror, to intimidate under threat of violence, if not violence eventually, people to conform to their worldview. Bend and bow to our position or we will attack you. We will hurt you. We will kill you. That's a terrorist. That's a persecutor. The persecutors were the people, like the Pharisees to Jesus, who tried to force Him to conform to their worldview and He would not. And then later, the same ones in some cases, to the early Christians, trying to force them under threat of stoning, or in the case of Stephen, following up with the threat with actual stoning, to force the church to submit to the old mindset. And they would not. They were pressured, they were forced into a smaller box to conform to the world instead of being transformed. That's persecute. Jesus says, blessed are you, persecuted people because you refuse to conform you're transformed you refuse to fit in you're going to be different abnormal unusual christian blessed are you persecuted people and in so being they will revile you blessed are you who are privately attacked privately in their hearts thinking evil thoughts about you as they plot what they will do to you as they whisper their hatred of you in their mind or in a very small circle of other plotters. Blessed are those who privately seek to destroy you and follow it up by slandering you, publicly attacking you, publicly uh, accosting you, publicly trying to destroy you and your reputation. But specifically, notice the key modifier in the, in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and speak evil of all manner against you falsely for my sake. It's got to be falsely or it does you no good. Because if you really did do all those evil things they're slandering you about, it's not slander, it's just truth telling. So blessed are you when you have to have enemies lie about you and say all the things that they say that you're doing that you're not really doing. Because we're not really going to do those things, right? They're going to have to falsely say them. That's the point. So we're going to live for Jesus. We're going to live right. And our enemies are going to have to lie about us. This section of the Beatitudes is all about my relationship with them. What is my character going to be with those who are not like me? Those who are not children of God. Those who are not citizens of the kingdom. Who want to make war with me? Well, I'll make peace with them. Who want to pressure me? Well, I won't conform to them. Who want to speak evil and think evil of me? Well, I won't think evil of them. And who want to speak evil of me? Well, I won't speak evil of them. That's my relationship with them and what it's going to be. That's the Beatitudes. That's Jesus describing the kinds of people who belong to his kingdom. Now, jump ahead with me to Matthew 5, verse 
really 19 and 20. We had verse 19 uh, not read to us because I forgot to say it, but read with me verses 19 and 20. And notice what Jesus says here about the Pharisees. Matthew 5, 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of the commandments and shall teach men to do so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, do, do and teach what, Jesus? The least of the commandments in the context. The same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do you want to belong to the kingdom of heaven? According to Jesus in this text, now you can break minutia down and you can add different things that he said here and there, but let's just strictly keep it with what he says here. According to Jesus in this text, all you've got to do to enter and to belong to the kingdom of heaven, to be worthy, for lack of a better word, because none of us are really worthy, to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to have your righteousness, the things that you do in goodness, exceed the goodness of the Pharisees. Now that statement alone is remarkable for Jesus to make because the Pharisees believe themselves to be the cream of the crop, the absolute top dog in terms of doing goodness. And if you don't believe them, they'll tell you so. They'll start every other sentence with, well, I'm so good because. And that's how they let people know how good they are. Because they keep telling people, goodness, we'd never know it if they didn't tell us. Because we've seen their actions. So they've got to tell us how good they are. Because you'd never know by seeing who they really are. So they're constantly telling people, look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. And Jesus looks at them and says, okay, guys, you've got to do the bare minimum if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which means you've got to do more than those people. Because in other words, the Pharisees are not even doing the bare minimum of righteousness according to Jesus' estimation. And he should know he invented righteousness. So he looks at the Pharisees and he says, they're like a negative one in terms of righteousness. You must do at least a plus one. Not even a plus five, a plus 30, a plus 70. The Pharisees are over there saying, we're plus 100. And Jesus says, barely even a D. Negative one. Not even passing. You must exceed that if you want to be considered worthy for the kingdom of heaven. Now, follow me here. Because if you're listening, if you're following along, you're probably thinking, those Pharisees. I'm a lot better than they are. And now you sound like a Pharisee. See the problem? See how easy that trap is to fall into? That's what we're talking about this morning. That was all introduction. I have three very short points, so don't, don't nobody freak out on me. But look again at what Jesus says to summarize. Unless you desire from the Beatitudes, unless you desire spiritual things, unless you are pious in your mourning, unless you are sacrificial, which is an aspect of meekness, unless you are sincere, which the Pharisees are none of those things. They don't care about spiritual things. They're worldly. They're not pious in their mourning. They're not, they, they put on a big show when they had the, the sackcloth and ashes because they wanted people to say how pious they are. They're not. They're not sacrificial. They're not sincere. They're hypocrites. He calls them that all the time. So unless you're not that, you can't be part of Jesus' church. And the temptation for us is to say, fine, that's easy. Preacher, I hear what you're saying. All I've got to do is be better than the Pharisees. All I've got to do is be better than those evil people. All I've got to do is be better than my enemies. If you can do that, people, listen to me. Everyone look at me. If you can do that, you can become part of the kingdom. Here's the problem. That's a big if. Because they're your enemies. And loving your enemies is not as easy as it sounds. If you don't believe it, ask the Pharisees. 
who loved each other, shook hands with each other, went to dinner with each other, watched TV with each other, but they hated everybody else. It's real easy to say, well, I'm glad I'm like those people. I feel like I heard that in the Bible one day. I'm glad I'm not like those sinners over there. That's what the Pharisees said. It's easy to fall into that trap and to put yourself on the pedestal and put everybody else in the context of enemy or friend. We need to remember that we're all enemies to somebody else. And once upon a time, we were all the enemies to God. And He loved us, so we must love. You want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? You must love your enemies. Now, what does that mean? What's the expectations built into that? What are some examples? Are there any? Yes, indeed. Keep reading in Matthew 5. If you love your enemies, look at verses 23 and 24. Be a peacemaker. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has ought against you, the King James says ought, a problem with, a beef with, we'll say. Leave, therefore, your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Let's put that in modern 2021 terms. If you want to come to this building, you don't have to to worship, but let's make it easier on ourselves. If you want to come to this building and sit in those pews and sing these songs, and you remember that your brother in Christ has a problem with something you did to them, that you did something to them, you made them their enemy, and you made them your enemy. You made them your enemy. Yeah, you became enemies with them now. And this is your brother we're talking about. Your fellow Christian. And you remember that. Don't you dare sing another verse. Don't you dare pick up that wafer or that little glass of Welch's. Don't you dare put a check in the plate. Stop listening to me right now and text that person and say, I did that and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Jesus says in the text, you are bringing your lamb to the altar. And you remember, somebody is mad at me because I did something to them. And how dare I go to God asking Him to forgive me when I can't even be reconciled and forgiven by my brother? Go take care of that relationship first. Because there is a long-standing Old Testament precedent of God telling His people, I don't want your stinking cows. I don't want your goats. I don't want your songs. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your grain. I don't want your phony baloney, show it. I want to see, uh, your phony baloney, uh, show it but not live it. I want to have sincerity for my worshipers. So go get things right, then come worship me. That's a standard practice of God of not wanting my filthy worship. So make your worship pure by reconciling with those you have ought against and them who have ought against you. In a phrase, be a peacemaker. Even if, in this context, it's your own brother. It doesn't have to be necessarily a blood brother. I think even more appropriate is a spiritual brother or sister in Christ. But now think about that because it can be really hard to forgive your brother when they wrong you as opposed to some random person on the street. Some random person on the street wrongs you. you it might anger you. It might upset you. You might get really upset about it, in fact. But eventually you'll let it go because you'll think to yourself, I would hope, well, I'm never going to see that person again, so I'm really not going to let it bother me too bad. Now, a lot of people, not me, but I've heard, when they're wronged by someone they're close with, it's a lot easier for them to forgive. It's a lot easier for them to move on because this is my loved one. We have a long relationship with them. But for a lot of people, if you're close with that person and they wrong you and they do you wrong, I mean, 
I know in the text it's I've wronged them, but let's make it easier to, to swallow. They've wronged me. They've let me down. They've disappointed me. They've betrayed me. And that's someone I've known for a long time. That's a bigger hill to get over sometimes for a lot of people. And yet Jesus says, your first inclination is to make war. Blessed are those who make peace. This brothers become your enemy. Go make peace with them. Point number two, love your enemies. If you want to love your enemies, you have to be meek. Let's see meekness in action. Look at verses 38 through 42. You've heard it's been said, verse 38, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, resist not evil. Whosoever smites you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. And if any man will sue you at the law to take away your coat, give him your cloak also. And whoever will compel you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to him that asks of you, and from him that would borrow from you, turn not away. If you want to love your neighbor, you must be meek. Well, who is my neighbor in this context? In this context, the neighbor is your government who is using the power of government against you. Maybe even abusing the power of government against you. Exceeding beyond what is considered acceptable in the government-subject relationship. The Roman Empire was a, was a um, tyrannical regime. Now, they had a pretty good system going for a long time where they did their best to quell any possible uprisings. They, they had a lot of particular ways they handled their laws. But at the end of the day, they had their thumbs on the, the, the scale. And they had their foots on the neck of all the nations and, and regions that they had conquered. And they used their authority. Jesus says, your first inclination is to want to fight back. I'm telling you, he says, resist that temptation. Be meek. Don't fight back yield and they'll call you weak they'll call you a boot licker or anything else like that but you just be meek as he is meek but now look at the specifics verse 38 he opens with the old testament you know what the old testament says eye for eye tooth for tooth one for one two for two if someone does you wrong you do them wrong right back evil oh, evil equal equal fair just Everybody wins. Everybody, oh, everybody loses equally, I guess is the way to put it. But that's not Christianity. In Christianity, it's unjust. In Christianity, it's unfair. In Christianity, it's not equal. In Christianity, you wrong me, and that's the end of it. Instead of it being, you hit me, so I hit you back, and now we've both been hit, it's you hit me, and that's it. I'm not going to hit you back. That's not fair. That's not just. That's not equal. No, that's Christianity. That's meekness. So what does he say? Verse 39. Don't fight back with evil. But whoever smites you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. What does that look like? I may have said this before. You may know this anyway. What Jesus is saying here is a really subtle bit of passive, nonviolent resistance in a way that forces your enemies to dishonor themselves without you dishonoring yourself in the eyes of God. They're going to have to dishonor themselves before men so that you don't dishonor yourself before God, which he would consider smacking them back because he says be not resisting be meek so what does that mean how is it how is it nonviolent resistance well because there in this culture and in many cultures in the east even still your left hand is your dishonored hand you're not supposed to do anything with your left hand pity those who are born left-handed i guess but if you're left-handed lefty that's your dishonored hand your right is your honored hand and there are certain things you can't do with your left hand for example you can't shake someone's hand with your left hand in certain cultures you have to do that with your right if you want to smack somebody, believe me, there's regulations for this sort of thing. If you want to smack somebody, you must smack them, open palm, strike 
top to bottom with your right hand like this away. You can't backhand someone, that's dishonorable. You can't use your left hand to smack someone, that's dishonorable. Tested all this out on Alex the other day. <laughs> you got to use your right hand top to bottom. All right, that's the way you do it. Now Jesus says, here comes this government authority who wants to use his right hand on you. You can't fight back anyway, the human temptation is, but if you do, then you're in the slammer or they're going to kill you one or the other. So he's going to come and he's going to strike you with his right hand with, on your cheek. Jesus says, turn your left cheek to him. Now once you do that, he can't hit you this way because your cheek is turned that way. It doesn't work. He's going to have to do one of two things. Either backhand you, which is dishonorable to him, or use his left hand, which is dishonorable to him. At no point in this scenario are you hitting him, which is dishonorable to you in the eyes of God. Instead, Jesus says, if he's going to dishonor you, make him dishonor everybody by striking you with his left or with his backhand. Turn the other cheek to him. Well, that is some sly, nonviolent resistance by my master. But the key of it is, you're going to be meek. You're going to resist without violence. Look at the next one. I love this one the best. Whoever, verse 41... Whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him two miles. This again, you may know this already, so I'm not trying to just waste your time with things you already know, but I like to talk about this one, so I'm going to. Uh, in the Roman Empire, if a soldier uh, was passing through your, your region or whatever, it was, it was not considered acceptable for a Roman soldier to carry his own bags. A Roman soldier would not carry his own luggage, his own sword, his own shield, his own undergarments or whatever. He would have someone in the community carry them for him. He would go to the house of someone in the village and say, here are all my things, you must carry my stuff now. And if you say no, well, then he's going to take his stuff, which includes a sword, and he's going to end your life because you've got to do what the Roman soldier says. So you've got to carry his luggage. Now listen, if it stops there, you're going to have uprisings and violence and rebellion all over the empire. So again, they're very subtle, they're very clever. They say, the law is, you only have to carry their luggage for a mile. Just go a mile and then put the bags down and go home. And then after a mile, he'll find someone in town there, and they'll carry a mile, and so on and so forth. So he's getting off easy. He doesn't carry his bags at all. You've only got to carry his bags a mile. All right. A normal person, typical person, under subjugation to Rome, will carry his bags, reach a mile, and say, well, the next town's just right there. I'll go a little bit further, and I'll put the stuff down. I'm not going to go exactly 5,280 feet. I'll give you... I'll give you 5,500 feet. If it gets you to the next town for the next neighbor, let him deal with you. And then I'll go home. That's, that's usual. That's typical. A Jew, though. <laughs> a Jew is not playing that game. See, the Jews hate being under the oppressive thumb of a foreign nation. This goes all the way back to Egypt, who, in their estimation, they freed themselves from, even though all they did was just complain the whole time and God did law. But since then, they've got this complex. They do not like the idea of the people who did the exodus being oppressed by another nation which is why god frequently sends other nations to oppress them to punish them because he knows that's what makes them you know that's what riles them up the worst and really really uh, upsets them the hardest it's not fire and brimstone from heaven it's just putting another nation in charge of their taxes the jews just hated that so here are the jews a roman soldier comes knocking on this random jew's door and says okay i'm here with my stuff you know the drill we have to go a mile and the jew is compelled by law to go with him a mile but what he'll say is just a sec. And you'll have this ball of twine that is rolled up exactly one mile in length. And I mean 5,280 feet and not a millimeter more. And he's got a stake in his yard, a nail, and he'll tie twine in. All right, let's go. And he'll walk until the twine oh, runs out. 
That's exactly it. And he'll take the luggage and just drop it. See ya! And he'll go back home. I've gone exactly my one mile. I will not go one mile in one foot. I will not go one mile in one toenail. I've gone one mile. That's all you get from me. That's what the law demands. Not one penny more. That was the Jews' idea. And you can even see why they would think that. Because they come from a culture of overanalyzing and over-scrutinizing and over-meticulizing the law of Moses. You know, we're going to make sure that we don't dis- break the Sabbath or disobey the law of God to even the minutia. So if you say one mile, you get one mile. And then here comes this radical Jesus. Go two miles. Two miles? Two, two miles. And if they use the government against you and they sue you and they take away your coat, your outer jacket, give them your inner coat as well. If they take your coat, give them the shirt off your back. And they're going to look at you like you're crazy. You're going a second mile with me? You're going to give me the shirt off your back too? Well, they match. That's the attitude. And it's such a radical attitude that it's going to make them pause and probably not want to smack you in the face, which is where this began. Right? Do you see that? My enemy is my government. What do I do? I'm meek to them. Last one, then we'll be done. Read with me verses 43 through 48. 43. You've heard it's been said, love your neighbor. Here it is. Hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why, Jesus? So that you may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise in the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Or snow, I'm just saying. Verse 46. For if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the publicans have the same attitude? Verse 47. And if you salute your brethren only, not like military, but like a happy hello, your brethren only, then what are you doing more than others? Even publicans do that. Be therefore, my Bible says perfect, but the meaning is complete, whole. Do the whole of it. Do all of it. Even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? You have to love your enemies. If you love your enemies, even if your enemy is your enemy. In other words, not your brother, who you had a previous good relationship with. It's not your government, who there's always going to be a separation with. But I mean, your enemy is this persistent, constant, always nagging thorn in your side enemy. And they're doing all these evil things. Just look at the list he gives you in verse 44. They uh, are your enemies. They curse you. They hate you. They despitefully, the King James says, they with spite out of a desire just to hurt you will use and abuse you and they will persecute you. And what is my reaction to them? What does he say? Love them, bless them, do good to them. Do good to them. Even before they do bad to you, do good to them and pray for them. That's hard to do. Then I remember that I was once the enemy of God. And he did the ultimate good for me before I ever did anything good to him. How I used to curse him. How I used to abuse his blessings and not, take, uh, and not appreciate his blessings like the sun and the rain that he gives me. And so Jesus says to follow up, verse 45, if you do those things, you can be children of your Father which is in heaven. You do those things, you can be like God. That's what it means to be a child of someone in this culture. If I'm a carpenter and I raise a son, my son's going to be a carpenter. He's, there's, there's, 
not like schools where he goes to learn to do whatever he wants. It was, it was exceedingly rare. If I'm a dad, my son's going to grow up in my trade. He's going to do as I do. I'm going to teach him what I do. Well, my father is going to teach me to do as he does, and he loves his enemies. If I want to be the child of my father, I must love my enemies. I must do good for my enemies, even when and before or while they are using and abusing me. Verse 46, because if you only love the people that love you, even, even the outcasts of society who have no one else do that. If you only are kind when you say hello to someone, when they say hello to you, well, even, even Hitler loved his dog, right? Anyone can do that. You must be complete. If you're going to love at all, you must love it all. Because if God loves at all, God loves it all. Right? God loves all, so I must love. And it's easy for me to look over there and say, well, these people are nice to me, so I'll be nice to them. These people are not nice to me, so I won't be nice to them. And we'll just go our separate ways. But that is not the attitude of God. He went out of His way to bring you to His way. You were, had already gone your separate way, and He did not let you go. He put His own Son on the cross so you could be back with Him. Reconcile. Peacemaker. Do likewise. As hard as it is. What are we talking about this year? Three little words, right? Love your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? Is it the nice person across the street that smiles at me when I smile at them? Metaphorically, theoretically. Is it the person across the street who, who is, is old and retired and their kids are long gone, but they see your child playing in the front yard with the puppy and they just get all inspired, so they make you chocolate chip cookies because they just want to be a nice neighbor? Oh, it's easy to love those people. Love the neighbor who, when you smile at them, they flip you off. Love your neighbor who, who looks at you ugly because they hate your dog. Love at your neighbor who is just mean all the time for no reason. What is up with that person, Lauren? Love that neighbor. They'll never watch this. They're really, they, don't, they don't watch anything I do. I'm just kidding. I'm totally just kidding. You love that neighbor too. And it's not even that kind of a neighbor. It's not the other person on the other side of the fence neighbor. It's you love anybody in the world. Because the more you act like Jesus, beginning in Matthew 5, the more the world is going to realize you're not acting like them. And they're either going to respond by going to you to act like you do, which is like Jesus, or they're going to respond by attacking you for not acting like them. And when they attack you and they become your enemy, love your enemies. Because that's what God did first for you. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are still, I'm sorry to say, the enemy of God. And yet, the salvation of Jesus is still open for you. His death still resonates. It's still available for you to take advantage of. Use that. Use His blood. Wash away your sins. And then live faithfully for Him. Living like Him in the midst of a world full of enemies. If you are a Christian but you've not been faithful, if to put the sermon home, you've not been loving your enemy specifically, well, we want to encourage you, help you, give you the, the confidence and the biblical understanding for what the blessing is and for how to do that to help you along the way. Whatever your need is, make it known right now. Please come as we stand and sing.